Hey there, Scott here from Social Energy Presents, and thanks for joining us. We've got a real treat for you with a very special episode from one of my personal favorite artists, the metal queen herself, Lee Aaron. Lee is a Canadian musician and one of the world's top metal singers who's had numerous hits in the 80s and 90s, such as Metal Queen, What You Do To My Body, and Sex With Love. Her album Body Rock went multi-platinum and was voted one of the 20 most influential albums of the decade by Chart Magazine. And Chart also listed such diverse musicians as Avril Lavigne, Alanis Morissette, and Shania Twain. Her later albums showed a wide artistic range and diversity, including jazz and a pop-jazz hybrid album as she moved forward in her career. Over the years, Lee's received 10 Juno nominations, a Much Music Best Video Award, and a pair of Best Female Vocal Awards, and a CMPA Songwriters Award. And today, Lee joins us from her home in Vancouver, BC, for an intimate look at her career, and to bring us up to speed on what she's been working on next. So sit back, relax, and get ready, as Social Energy now presents you with your Backstage Pass. Without further ado, let me introduce you to our regular guest lineup, our panel, who joins us each and every show. Charles, our engineer, how are you doing, buddy? Doing fantastic, Scott. Excited about our show today. Yeah, this is going to be a great show. I, I, I can't wait. And, of course, our uh, resident rock star music uh, aficionado and traveling troubadour, Mr. Mick Dalavi. How are you doing, buddy? Where is he? There he is. How are you doing, buddy? I'm here. Hi, boys. What's going on? Oh, this is, I'm excited. This is an awesome show. This is going to be great. I know. You're such a fan of Lee Aaron. This is great. Uh, I'm a huge fan. Yeah. Huge fan. Love her music. I think she's got probably one of, my, in my opinion, one of the best voices in rock. And now in listening to her jazz, oh, my gosh. just She's got the pipes. Oh, my God. I know. It's, it's, it's pretty remarkable, isn't it? Oh, yeah. I, I can't wait yeah. to get started. So why don't we bring her in and have her join us? There, there she is. Highly. <laughs> yeah, well, thanks a lot for being on this show. This is fantastic. You know, oh, I'm excited I, to be here in my own yeah. home. <laughs> I know, isn't it nice? It's it's kind of nice in a way. It you is. Can sort of stay at home, and the, you know, the kids don't. You don't need a babysitter, and yeah. Well, yeah, the, it's, it's a whole new way of doing things way. now, right? So yeah, and how, it reminds how, me of a lot of the interviews that I would do for Europe, right? Um, right. They used to be telephone, but now more and more people are doing Zoom, right? Because I can't just get on a plane and go to Germany whenever, you know, they need me. And <laughs> <So. laughs> how, how old are your kids now? Um, my, our children, John and I, our children are six, 15 and 16. We have wow. them very close together. Yeah, um, yeah wow. so, yeah, um, don't even talk to me about it. Our daughter just got her L, her learners, and... Uh, <laughs> it's it's yeah i'm giving driving lessons so in, in, in winter <laughs> well no not yeah. today <laughs> ixnay on the driving lessons for today forget it <laughs> although i, I know it's insane go ahead no no i just i was just gonna say this this show's being taped uh we're over in victoria bc and and you're over in vancouver and yeah. uh, although we seldom seldom get snow in this region we just got dumped on right now so this no. show is being taped on February 13th. So yeah. yeah, it's 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 quite amazing out there. My poor little dog, she's she's a, a rescue from Mexico and today I took her for a walk. She had no idea what was going on. <laughs> oh yeah. I've got I've got snow drifts, 3, three foot snow drifts. It's crazy. You have well, you guys are getting more snow than we are. We only we have about oh, I don't know, maybe 4 or 5 inches on the ground right now. 
it's yeah. not so bad, but uh, enough to make a snowman. So I'm sure my kids are going to be out in the yard shortly because it's it's absolutely novel for them to get snow. As opposed to me, I grew up in um, I grew up in Winnipeg when I was a real young girl, and then I lived in the Toronto area. So. You know, I'm, I'm the champ, man. I can drive in snow. I can drive in just about anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm from Sault Ste. Marie, so I'm sort of right in between those. So oh, I, I know all that stuff. Yeah. Now, I was going to say, um, now, you, there's a couple of things. For one thing, I, I, I said in the email that I love your husband's drumming. I think John is one of these, he's one of the great drummers. And, and I, I, I just want to reiterate this verbally because i said it in the email he filled in for the drummer in my band god it had to be it must have been years ago so my band's been my band's been together for 32 years now so i think john might have played with us probably possibly 20 years 20 well actually it was before he was with you i think yeah Yeah. i'm pretty sure it was before he was with you and i remember him no matter what song we threw at him he would play it like not only like the drummer of the song he could also somehow get the tonalities he would hit the snare in a different way to get the, that to get that sort of the different tones out of the snare and stuff. So it wasn't just the same drum sounds. He's really, really musical. He's very musical, and his drumming does he, style. Does he play anything other other than rock? Sorry, we must have a real bad delay. Do you know? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, we have Sometimes a very bad delay. We, yeah, sorry about that, guys. But um, can you hear me? Oh yeah. 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 So yeah, John plays all kinds of different styles. He has played in um, everything from Am folk bands. Yet? Did a lot of folk bands. Am I on um, now? Oh, sorry, sorry, Mick. Yeah, I think Mick's Mick's. Uh, okay, I must be on now. We can we can edit this part. No, it's not a problem. It's just Mick's. Mix. Okay, there we go. Am He's I, back. Am I on now? Okay, I just because I, it might have been me. I I switched to a different Wi-Fi thing. Um, you guys hearing me? Yeah. Oh yes, yeah, so I can hear you fine. Okay. Yeah, I think I think the it's delay actually was... on Mick. It's on your side. If you yeah, I, I realized that because I looked at my Wi-Fi. I've got three options for Wi-Fi, and for some yep. reason it was picking up the upstairs one, which is on a delay. Okay, cool. so thank you for your patience. Anyway, we're talking about your husband John. Now we can do it in real time. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, so, so John, yeah, he he plays all kinds of styles. In fact, when I met John, we were on a jazz tour across Canada. Um, with three different acts, but what they had done is put together the A-team of everyone's band. I wanted my drummer at the time, but um, I had a, an argument with uh, this other fellow, and it, it ended up, I brought my keyboard player and my horn player, and John was someone else's drummer, and that's how we met, is on a jazz tour. So we were actually started out playing jazz together, and we met and fell in love and ended up getting married um, that way. But so John has played in my jazz band, but he's also he also plays folk. He also plays in Alex Brown's Brown's Boulevardiers. They're um, they do big band like Gene Krupa Swing, that kind of wow. stuff. And uh, and he's a great rock player as well. But his what he brings, I feel, to my my rock sound, band sound is is more of a very like a nuanced kind of thing. Like it's like Charlie Watts meets Keith Moon or something like that, mm-hmm. where it's not just the the you know the the guy who's slamming all the time but he can play perfectly to a click john is not that kind of drummer but i think that that's what gives especially my new rock music that i've been producing and um releasing in the last say six years a really unique sound so um, i love his drumming (laughs) well you got a great band i mean dave reimer is what he's one of my best friends and he's one of the great singer bass players out there oh tell me about it yeah Uh, 
Yeah, and I, I'm sorry I don't know your guitarist. Um, the, the only way I know your guitarist is actually through that little birthday present we just we all did for Dave recently for the the birthday song, but um, and he played on that. Uh, but I know I I figure if he's playing with you, he's got to be a great player. So well, just a little background on Sean Kelly. Um, Sean Kelly uh, is from Toronto. He his background is playing with Carol Pope. He's played in Helix and Coney Hatch, but his main gig for quite a few years was Nelly Furtado. Oh, oh wow. Wow. He's, he's also a, not only a fabulous player, but a very nuanced player as well. Sean can play everything from classical. Like he's, he has a classical guitar album out um, of Christmas music. These did, you know, um, he had his own band Crash Kelly for years and years. So he, the reason I love working with him as well is he's capable of doing everything so much more than just lunkhead rock you know and um that's that's what I, I i feel i need players like that in my band and he's a great singer as well so um our deal you know when we play live you know we're not a band we never use click we never use anything that's um triggered by click or programmed you know it's the real rock and roll deal you in my if you're in my band you have to be able to play and you have to be able to sing and that's right. that's that's kind of how we do it, right? <laughs> I was going to say, so uh, by the way, we were all commenting before you got on camera on how good your jazz stuff is. It's unbelievable. Oh. How you've got, you are really a great, great singer. I mean, you were always a great rock singer, but when I heard your jazz stuff, it was, I, I remember hearing it when it first came out and I was going, that's Learn. I, I hate you to know? say it. I, I like you better than, than Diana Krall. I mean, you just, you've got the chops. Oh my gosh. Oh, well, I, I wouldn't even compare myself to Diana. I think she's fabulous, but she's different than I am. My, um, yeah. you know, a little, just a little history. You know, I, I grew up um, from a very young age singing in choirs and musical theater when I was young. So I had quite a, um, uh, I would say a rich background in being well-versed in jazz and blues as well as Broadway and show tunes. And so in the early 90s when um, basically everybody who was anybody who was associated with hair metal or classic rock whose careers were completely devastated by the grunge movement um, i took a year off in 1996 because i had to go bankrupt <laughs> it's a long story i don't even want to get into it but my manager and lawyer had gotten me into a situation where i had borrowed close to half a million dollars from various sources, including the Federal Business Development Bank and developed to develop a new label. But unfortunately, you know, the industry didn't want anything to do with any names that were associated with that genre of music. So my career just kind of fell off, a, you know, went for a landslide, like many, many other artists of that era. And I had to really rethink what I wanted to do. And when I when I came back, I, I thought, you know, I love this music. What about singing it? And I didn't really think of it as a big career move. I, I just started, people were bugging me to play live again. So I just started playing a few nightclubs in the Vancouver region, doing jazz with a piano player. And then that evolved into having a bass player and a horn player. And then that evolved into doing a record because people, so many people kept asking about it. But um, my approach to jazz was always to bring the Lee Aaron edge to it. Kind of like in the same type of way that Nina Simone or um, I would say Etta James or um, you know uh, you know Annie Ross or you know a lot of those singers had a very um, 
an edge. A nasty edge to the way that they approach jazz. Yeah. So I was yeah. sort of bringing, you know, you can take the girl at a rock, but you can't, you know, <laughs> take the rock well, out of the girl. <laughs> I think that's why so many women admire Etta James, actually. It's because of that that juxtapose of her voice between that that smooth to the edge and and everybody can kind of relate to both of that, you know, no matter what kind of singer you are. Oh, she was, yeah, absolutely devastating. She was such a good singer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, go ahead. So I so you were you were born in Belleville. How much time did you spend there? Before Not very long. I, I it's interesting because I'm writing um, some memoirs and memoirs slash autobiography right now. And I was trying to remember things about living there. I only lived there till I was two. And then I moved to Winnipeg. Mm. Um, the Winnipeg yeah, because I, I love Belleville. It's one of the sweetest little towns. And a, a really good friend of mine has a, a theater there. His name is Mark Rashad. He's actually quite a good musician as well. He actually oh. plays, you know, Clarence Clemon, who played with, uh, with Bruce Springsteen. And of course, he passed away and his nephew took his place in the E Street Band. Have well, you seen the, Mark, uh, the Letters to You documentary? No. Oh, it's it's fabulous. You have to watch it. I don't know. Oh, wait a minute. That's a that's a Clarence Clemon one. Yes, I did see it. No, no, no. It's brand oh. new. It's his nephew that comes in to play with the band. They filmed it in about five days in Bruce's studio in New Jersey. And it's a whole bunch of new material that he wrote. But yeah. also um, he revives a couple of his early tunes as well with a new approach. And basically the band said, Bruce, we don't even want you to play us anything. Just play it to us when we get to the studio so it can, we can we don't have too much time to overthink it. And right. he comes in and he just plays them a bunch of songs on acoustic guitar. And they cut this album called Letters to You. It's it's so good. It's so good. Oh, wow. I'm, I'm not even a like a historically like a big Bruce Springsteen fan, but it's it's unbelievable. Um, again, I don't know that it's just generally out there on Netflix. We have a network called Plex here that we we pay for, and it was right. ava it's available on Plex. But it is so good. So yeah, I'm just saying. Letters to you, Bruce Springsteen. You have to. And I'll, I'll it's look released that up. as an album now as well. So. Well, I what I was gonna. I'm sorry, his <laughs> name fails me. His his nephew. What's his nephew's name? Do you call it? Um. You know what? I It escapes me as well at this moment. Yeah, because he's the one that plays sax with him now. Anyway, I was going to say that Mark was shot has a band with him as well. And um, so Mark sent me his his album a little while ago. And it's really interesting. It's almost like it's it's almost like some of it's almost like beat poetry. You know, it's 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 a real eclectic sort of album. Cool. Yeah, yeah really I'm not familiar with this material, but yeah. Cool. We were talking about 1989. In 1989, when I'm we were talking, I mean, in the emails, um, that in uh, 1989, I happened to play Toronto for the first time in my life, actually. Even though I'm from Sault Ste. Marie, I, when I moved to go on the road, I came out west. And I played in Toronto a few dates with Frank Soda. Oh! <laughs> yeah, I'm sure Love you know Frank. Frank. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so, and, and of course, it's so funny because we're rehearsing and Frank's one of these guys who's like, yeah, uh, just jump in, just jump in, you know, yeah. no matter what song it is. But you don't know the song. Oh, just jump in. You know? So anyway, so we, we had a couple of rehearsals and and it was me and Mark LaFrance and Frank Soda. And we all brought some original material to the to the thing to do this this tour. And we had one rehearsal. We didn't know each other's stuff. Frank says, oh, it's OK. I got a friend. We can rehearse in Toronto. And our first show is this little outdoor thing. Not to worry about the little outdoor thing. They ended up calling it Livestock 89. There was 35,000 people there. Oh <laughs> we, we show up and I'm like, I don't even know the songs yet. You know, 
And we get up there. And of course, Frank's jumping around, blowing things off his head. So, <laughs> so it, it went over great. But it's so funny because that particular, it was a three-day festival. And that particular night, Colin James closed the show. And yeah. he was magnificent. He was right at the pinnacle of his career when he first was hitting. And, you know, he was like the new guy. And he was so well-respected. And so after, they had videotaped this entire show. And so everybody goes into this, the, the, the media bus later to watch the rushes from the show. Now, I'm expecting to watch Colin James. No, they play me getting the audience to sing Gilligan's Island in the middle of the afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's all these drunk people, the skipper too. <laughs> because the promoter says, that was the highlight of the whole three days. <laughs> it was one of those magical things. But, but anyway, the reason I brought that up is because that was what, right when you were like you're you're you were all over much music in those days yeah. I mean, it seemed like every time it turned on much music you were on yeah and 80 from 1989 until about 1992 you know i i joke around now i say that was my five minutes but i was like sort of like the it girl on much music for a while because that the body rock album and the some like body rock was close to triple platinum um, some girls do was plot was over platinum in Canada. And, um, at that time, I don't know, I just seemed to hit with the right songs at the right time with the right visuals and much music was all over. I was in heavy rotation. So, you know, the funny, the funny thing about that, um, when I met my husband, um, John, and we, we had to do a rehearsal for this jazz tour, like I said, um, and it was, it was quite awkward because previous to him and I meeting in, we met in 2001, in the spring of 2001. And uh, again, the my friend Ralph Alfonso, who worked at Network Records, was orchestrating the entire thing. And he said, you know, we're going to put together this A-team and we all have to rehearse each other's material because this the one band is going to play for all three artists because that was the only way financially to make this jazz tour work from coast to coast, right? Matt, can I interject? Who, was, who else was on the bill with you? Dave Rave from Teenage okay. Head. He okay. does it like a jazzy thing as well. And then Ralph Alfonso had a whole beat poetry thing going on as well. I don't okay. know if he, it was sort of like, you know, Jack Kerouac meets Leonard Cohen kind of vibe. And he would get up and he did a, like a, you know, it was very Leonard Cohen-y. He did a talk poetry kind of thing over music, which was really, really quite great. And uh -huh. um, so we, anyway, but he needed a headliner. So he asked me to be, because he needed somebody who was gonna draw people in to see the show. I, I don't mean that in a braggy kind of way, but that's why I was invited onto this tour. Of course. But financially to make it work, they had to put together the A-team. So I had called John, uh, Cody, several times in the past to sub for my regular drummer, a guy named Matt Pease, when he was unavailable because my, my horn player, Graham Howell, um, kept saying, you know, you gotta work with John Cody. He's amazing. You'd love his drumming style. He tunes his drums so well. He's great. He'd be great in your jazz band. So I had called and left messages on a few occasions for John and said, hi, John Cody, this is Learen calling. And, you know, my drummer can't make this show. And I was hoping you might be available. I never even got a phone call back from this guy, right? <laughs> I was like, playing, playing hard to get. <laughs> well, no, he's like, you know, I just thought you were like this dumb rock chick, like little tart <laughs> who pranced around, you know, in, you know, her little crop tops and, you know, little leather jackets. And he just, 
he just thought I was like some kind of like record company product that was being pushed to the forefront. So that was his experience with me. So he had, he had no interest even in really meeting me or playing with me. And um, <clears throat> well, again, I'm not meaning to be boastful, but our first hour of our first rehearsal, the first way, the first day, he said he was blown away. He said, I had no idea how good of a singer you were, that you were really very, very musical and how much talent you had. And of course, obviously we're married and we have children now. So <laughs> he, did a, he did a complete 360 on me. <laughs> well, it worked very well for you. That's, that's amazing. Yeah, I, I'm just, I was, I was stunned. I remember, now something comes to my mind's eye. Did, back when you first started your jazz thing, did you play a place on Hastings Street called the Atrium? Do you remember? Probably. I, it was in a I, little I, hotel right near the P&E. Oh, a little I, hotel? Or? That, yeah, well, it was like, you know, medium-sized hotel. I think it might be a Best Western now or something. Probably. I did. You know what? I was working with an agency out of Vancouver, and I realized early on that if I was going to play places like the Jazz Cellar, that I was going to be playing for $50 in a meal. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, so I was at that point, it had evolved to the point where I had a bass player, keyboard player and a horn player. I was a four piece. And I realized that the only way to actually make money doing this was to play the high end hotel circuit. So I was doing, you know, the revolving restaurant at the top of mm -hmm. the thing. And, you know, I did that. I was in the um, whatever, the Olympic Hotel, right there at the Pan Pacific. I started doing these high end rooms because they paid well. And I had a four piece act and I wanted to be able to pay them decently. However, what I didn't quite realize was that in the jazz world, that was not, that was like selling out to do those venues. They were like, that's not what you do. Right. And I'm like, how does anybody make a living doing this? Right. Mm -hmm. So the strange thing was in every other province, in every other jazz festival, when I did the jazz and I released my album Slick Chick, I actually had a great promotional team out of New York. Um, it was a former promo lady that I worked with, with Bebop Promotions. She had me doing CBC stuff. She had me do all over Canada. So I was doing the jazz festival, the Harperfront Festival in Toronto. I was doing the jazz festival in Ottawa, but in Vancouver, where I had played these high-end hotels, the jazz festival didn't want to touch me mm. because it wasn't respected. Mm. So that was kind of a blow. But the weird thing is I ended up in the Jazz Festival Guide anyway, because the hotels that I worked with that were involved in the Jazz Festival thing would hire me anyway. So it was this weird catch 22 where I wasn't officially in the Jazz Festival with the Vancouver Jazz Festival, but they had to advertise me in the Jazz Festival Guide because I was hired by the hotels anyway. Right. It was weird, it was, yeah. it was weird and you know, <clears throat> And I, I was working with some really great players, um, Tilden Webb. I don't mm -hmm. know if you're familiar with great, great um, uh, guy named Brent Gubbles, Danny, Danny Parker on bass. Um, yeah. Just trying to think of some of the other people that I worked with, you know, um, some really, really fabulous players. Well, so. It's interesting. Well, it's I remember when I, when I first started working with Randy, he'd always wanted to do a jazz album. He always sort of, he always sort of dabbled in jazz anyway, even songs like Undone or is a jazzy, you yeah, know, yeah. looking out for number one and all this sort of thing. So because Lenny Bro was his guitar teacher as a young boy in Winnipeg, 
he always had this thing about wanting to do a jazz album sort of in tribute to Lenny Bro's legacy. And so, I, and that was the thing. I, we, you know, we, we, we toured all over the place in every little nook and cranny, small little places, you know, and it, it, it's weird because it, it, I, Randy and Randy was paying me my, my regular wage and, you know, there was, we weren't flying to gigs. Let's put it that way. We were driving a lot. It was, there was scaled down things for that, but you know, a lot of it came out of his pocket just because he wanted to do it. You know, it was an important thing for him to do it. It was, it was interesting, but once again, he was panned totally. He was panned as not being real jazz, you know? Well, I wasn't panned. (laughs) That was the, I mean, that was. Well, you you weren't panned, but you were, frowned upon in Vancouver I guess sorry I, I used the wrong terminology you were frowned upon because where you played but Randy Randy actually had a lot of bad press because they didn't from the jazz aficionados I remember our first gig in Toronto it's a very weird world I have to say that um so yeah again because I started my the inception of the jazz thing was local and I was playing you know Babalu and places right I'm just trying to think that's where Michael Buble started right, right. You know? yeah Bubaloo and um, in fact, one night I walked in there, Michael's like, Lee, you got to get on stage and sing with me. And you know, the, the, the sad thing is he had all these great jazz players and he even came to me backstage. He says, you know, the guys in my, uh, maybe I shouldn't be saying this. He said, confided to me. He said, I'm a fan. I would love for you to get up and sing with me. I'm going to tell you something right now. The guys in my band think I'm cheesy, but I'm a hard worker. And I, my heart was broken when he said, I thought, oh my God. So I'm like, of course I'll get up and sing with you and look at him now, right? But the jazz guys didn't really respect him, Mm. you know, again, and look at him now. Mm. Um, It is a bit of a weird world, but I have to say when I played the top of the Senator, in Toronto, which is that, a very that's that's gym. the one where we that's the one where we, that we played in Toronto. That was our first right. gig. Yeah, the Globe and Mail loved me. Like I got very good reviews, and and I, but I you know and I don't mean to again like I'm not trying to toot my own horn, but this music for me was not. It wasn't like I just went, hey, jazz is the whole swing thing is kitschy in the in the mid '90s. I'm just going to jump on this bag bandwagon. I, these were my roots. I grew up singing this stuff. Mm. So it was very authentic for me. And yeah. I think that, that it was probably kind of hard to pan me um, because it was genuinely part of my soul, right? And it still is. I mean, yeah. I, on, um, you know, if you listen to the Diamond Baby Blues album, which was my 2018 release, you know, I covered an old Coco Taylor tune called I'm a Woman, which was the Bo Diddley tune, I'm a Man, re- reimagined for her. And then again, reimagined for me it's it's pretty much pure blues right and um but we do it a la zeppelin-esque style right uh but that's 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 part of my my whole quintessential sound i think is is you know that the roots of thing of music like that for sure well the one thing that's interesting about you and there's another instance and uh where this has happened and and they actually bridge is because your real name isn't Lee Aaron. You just adopted the name of the band that you were in. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and the same thing happened with Alice Cooper. You know, somebody had, somebody had to be named Alice Cooper in the band and the record company said basically, so Vince Fournier took the name Alice Cooper. And interestingly enough, you also work with Bob Ezrin, who was very instrumental (laughs) on the whole Alice Cooper thing, which is incredible bridge. Now, I'd love to ask you a bit about Bob Bresson. What was it like working with him? I was 
quite young, I was 22. Um, <clears throat> what had happened is after the Metal Queen album, we had written a bunch of tunes and we were back in the studio. We were in phase one studios in Toronto with Paul Gross, um, the producer who was part owner of the studio, but also um, he, was a, he was a wonderful producer. He produced the Metal Queen album for us. And, um, but it, I don't know, like two weeks into production, um, you know, and, and while, sorry, let me backtrack a bit. While we were doing this album, Bob Hezron was next door in the, 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 I think we were in B studio and he was in A studio. And he was doing a big, like, multi-band compilation thing with Molly Crew, Lita Ford, Ozzy Osbourne, all the, the quintessential big American rock acts of that time. He was doing this uh, album that featured all of them. But he kept coming next door to our studio and popping his head in and listening to what we were up to. And he was very, very interested in me, very interested in my voice and the songs and what we were doing. And... Um, coincidentally, two weeks into production, two to three weeks into production, poor Paul was one of the things he did for leisure was play racquetball. He was hit very hard in the eye with a racquetball. So he, his vision was all messed up. He was bandaged up. He had to bow out of producing the album for several weeks for his eye to heal. And we were like, ah, like this, the, 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 the record company's like, we're in the studio, what are we gonna do? And uh, when Bob Ezrin found out about our circumstances, he went right into Attic Records and he said, let me take over. My project's finishing in a week. I'd love to produce this girl. Uh, and that's how I ended up working with Bob, is Bob asked to come in and take over the project. And uh, he brought Dick Wagner up, who was his buddy from right. uh, Alice Cooper days. Right. And so Dick came in and, you know, again, we were just like, I think I was 22, John was 25, John Albany. And he brought Dick in to kind of massage some of our tunes into a place that he felt he could work with. And uh, yeah, that's how we ended up working together. Um, Bob is the guy who found Barely Holding On, which was our European single. Actually, I think it was our single in Canada too, but it that song truly broke us in Europe that year. Wow. And um, yeah, I mean... Honestly, the era that it was, I think there were some shenanigans going on when when we when John and I weren't around. But um, it was. So, what's John Albany doing now? Uh, John has a studio, a recording studio. John left the band in 1995, 96. Because you you guys wrote a lot of songs together. Yeah, he was my writing partner for twelve years, and we met in we met on the, the production of the Metal Queen album in 1983. And he was in the band until 1990, almost 1996. Um, so yeah, we, we worked together for 12 years. Uh, he was my co-writer and my partner in crime, great guy. But his dad always said to him, and his, his dad was a, a, a fairly notable hockey player for the Sault Ste. Marie team, actually. Really? Yeah, um, he was a goalie. Oh, um, wow. In fact, Ken Dryden, mentioned John Al Johnny Albany, John's dad, in his book. Um, wow. Yeah, as being wow. one of his influences. And his dad always said to him, no one to get out. And I don't know why that always resonated with John. So John, in when the whole grunge movement happened, he was just like, this is my ticket to leave. And he wanted to start a studio. He was very much into the production into things so he moved to nashville and he opened up a studio called sonic eden it still exists he's still doing recording projects down there um but he's also very involved he was also um 
uh, a photographer. He took a lot of my promotional pictures in the mid 1980s as well. And he is doing architectural hard, architectural photography, photography. And I think he actually makes just as much money from that now as he does from recording. Wow. So he's a very ta- multi-talented guy. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's pretty fascinating. Well, so what was the outcome of the Bob Ezrin sessions? Uh, did anything happen out of that? Was there any extra touring you got? Any extra connections from that at all? Or was it sort of just a thing that sort of played itself out? Well, we ended up on, we had a European tour booked. So we ended up on tour before the album was completely mixed. <clears throat> that was in 1985. So we, we were put on tour with Bon Jovi in the spring of 1985. Um, they were on the 7,800 degree Fahrenheit tour, I think it was called. Um, and that was, that was the that was the album that he had uh, Runaway on, right? Is that correct? I believe so. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so we were on an opening tour slot with Bon Jovi. <clears throat> the album was not quite mixed. I remember Bob was sending me mixes when I was on that tour, um, and we went back and forth. And then the moment, but we were gaining a lot. Of, it was wasn't my first time touring, and we were getting a lot of momentum. A lot of the press. Um, was very, very interested in us. And then right in the middle of that tour, the album came out and it was on a small label, small label then called Roadrunner out of Belgium. Oh, I know that label, yeah. That album broke huge because the timing of it was just perfect. So what ended up happening from that Bob Ezrin production was that they released Barely Holding On as a single. And that album sold like 100,000 albums in six weeks. So we were back by the fall headlining the same venues that we opened up for Bon Jovi in. Wow. That year. So that That's was a result of that Bob Ezra now. It really broke us in, in Europe. We, Canada was a struggle. Uh, Ralph Alfonso used to work for, he eventually worked for Network, but he used to work for Attic Records. He and I went on a promo tour for Barely Holding On across Canada. And I got to tell you, it was, it was difficult because Canadian radio they just didn't get me. You know, the, my first few albums, um, people knew of me because, of course, the Metal Queen video got some air. That was the inception of much music. So it was one of the very first, you know, um, videos to be played. I mean, I guess you can call it viral back then on much music that, you know, but um, Canadian radio did not play me. It was real. They did not get, you know, this was the land of, you know, Anne Murray and Joni Mitchell and there were not girls doing doing a more aggressive form of music at that time so they just it was I felt like it was beating our head against the wall doing that promo tour because radio was just like not you know it was at the bottom of their record pile that album they it was they were not that interested in it they just didn't seem to get a girl making a more, you know, like rock, rock music. Of course, that a decade later with Alanis and Avril Lavigne and completely changed that landscape, right? Yeah. But Right around the time of 89 in Toronto, uh, when you were like all over, like as, as a matter of fact, we, I think we have a picture of it somewhere. We'll probably throw it up on an overlay and post on this, but there's a picture of you and, and Gallagher on the cover of TV Guide. I mean, <laughs> yeah. you were huge. You were all over the place. Hmm. Yeah, Dan Gallagher. Oh yeah, Danny was, uh, he was one of the infamous hosts of Much Music back then. Yeah, yeah, I've met him um, a few times, yeah. I know, yeah, I knew all those guys really well. Wonderful, it was, it was a real fun crew of people back then, you know? Um, yeah. But 
Yeah, Much had the Much Awards. So he and I, um, in 89, of course, and 89, I think it was the 1990 Much Music uh, Video Awards. We, um, my album had, was, was, I was a big star back then. And uh, yeah, they invited me and Danny to co-host the Much Awards. So that's why we ended up on the cover of TV Guide together. In, in 89, when I, when I first really took note of you in a big way, because you were all over the place, but that was also around the time that Alana Miles' album started hitting. Yes. I think she just, uh, yeah. Now, was that, did that benefit you in a, in a way? Because it brought another girl who's doing, like hers, her, her rock wasn't as aggressive as yours. It was more pop rock. But what, did that help sort of elevate you a bit, or was it? Do you recall that era? Well, what I have to say about, yes, yes. But let me, what, what I have to say about that is by the time my, my music evolved to 1989, the most aggressive album I ever made was Metal Queen in 1984. And you know what? Metal Queen, I, I'm sure the only song you've heard from that album is Metal Queen. Am I correct? Yes, right. Yes. So people only know that song. That was probably the most aggressive song on the album, but it was the album title. So the choice was, let's release that as a single. Metal Queen was a very melodic, rock, melodic hard rock record. And my music just continued to evolve. I mean, in 1987, I did an album with Peter Coleman, who was Pat Benatar's producer. I'm not, a, I'm not sure if you're aware of that. That oh, okay. spawned, <clears throat> that was a very, very melodic rock record. It had the only humans, only human single. Okay. Only human was a top 40 hit on Canadian radio. So oh, by right. 1987, because it was a ballad, radio went on that in 1987 for me, right? Oh, okay. That was your, your self-titled album, right? Learn. That's correct. Yeah, By 1989, yeah. Body Rock was a pop album with, let's be honest, it was a pop album with big guitars. Yeah, what, you, what, you, do with my, what you do with my body. And... And, but finally, finally, Canada was ready for a girl doing that kind of music. Right. And then, of course, Chris Ward, who was Alana's boyfriend and partner for many years, Chris Ward, Dave Tyson, wrote all those songs for, Al for Alana Miles. Um, she, had a, she had this amazing, great voice. She put out this album. So her and I, we put out these albums simultaneous to each other. And Canadian radio, radio they were just finally ready. AOR was ready for those albums. And so Alana's album, of course, went, you know, she, of course, had a lot of much music muscle behind her because of the Chris Ward connection. Right. I mean, let's be honest, it's, uh, this music business is all about connections. Mm. But that did help me because they were like, you know, here's Alana Miles and here's Learen has done another great pop hard rock record. So <clears throat> both of those albums were able to coexist in the scene. And they, you know, I think they elevated each other really. And then of course, a couple of years later, there was Sass. So her and myself, Sass, um, you know, we we were we were sort of the initial women doing that, and and of course, Darby. There was Darby, and um, uh, a couple years before myself, there was Darby, and Hollywood's uh, as well. Pardon me, Hollywood's with Toronto. I was going to say Toronto, yeah. Toronto, her and Sharon yeah. Alton. You yeah. know, um, there were, were those girls as well, and yeah. um, but I th I think that you know. I'd like to think we kind of paved the way for artists like Alana, Alana, um, Alana, um, Alanis Morissette and um, Avril. 
Well, you, you certainly did. There's no two yeah. ways about it. And in 89, you were, I mean, like I said, Alana Miles was just starting to come up in the ranks. I think she had that um, Love Is was the big yeah, yeah. first mm -hmm. came out. And uh, you were like, you were all over the place. I mean, you'd, you'd hear Love Is a, probably a fair amount because of Christopher Ward, I'm sure. But because I don't think that was the best single on the album, but it was the initial single. But um, you were all over the place. It's, like I said, every time I turned on much music, you were on. I was also on tour for like 14 months straight. Oh, I bet, yeah. And, and great stuff, really, and really electric-looking videos, too. They just, like, they grabbed you. There was so much color and excitement in those videos. It was amazing. Oh, and they were fun. They were a lot of fun songs. I, I love that. That's They were upbeat, and, you know, they were great party songs, dance songs. Yeah. Well, about those videos, you know, um, I had done you know, multiple videos up to that point, but the sort of general vibe with a lot of the videos was I, that I was doing was the, you know, the dark moody lighting, the fire and stone, you know, rock look. And um, when it was time to do those videos, um, I went into, I was at Attic Records and they showed me a bunch of reels of people um, that they were considering for production of the videos. And all I saw there, I, I saw a video, a video reel from this guy named Don Allen had a, oh, I'm trying to remember what the name of his company was at that time. Um, but they were a company out of Toronto. They had done stuff. And what the thing that grabbed me is he had done a L'Oreal hair commercial and okay. it was all white background and lots of movement and things, lots of color. And I went, that's what I want for the what you do. I don't want fire and brimstone. I want fresh, fun, you know, healthy, fun-faced. I want to bring all these rough and tumble rooking rock guys into this environment. And that's how we ended up coming up with the, the video. Um, and the, the idea for that as well was to sort of turn, for what you, the what you do to my body video was to start, sort of, uh, turn uh, sexualize the sexual stereotypes because they were just rampant in the 1980s. It's like every rock video of every rock, you know, like Motley Crue or even Bon Jovi at that time, you know, they Poison, all had, like, Cinderella. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Like they all had the bikini clad, beautiful yeah. model types hanging off their arm to, to elevate their masculinity. And I thought, no, 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 we're not, you know, yeah. we're going to bring a bunch of good looking guys into this video and we're going to make them do normal everyday things like, like paint our backdrop or hold puppies or, you know, <laughs> you, you know, just fun stuff like that. And um, because I was really, you know, I, I was really conscious of the fact that I want, you know, I want women to like my act as well. I want this to have housewife appeal. Right. You know, and um so that, that was that was really the impetus behind those those videos. Well, the ultimate compliment, I remember, I think it was a description of back in the day, David Lee Roth was mm -hmm. one, uh, the the ultimate thing. And I think you achieved this is that uh, women wanted to be with him and men wanted to be like him. <laughs> and you were doing that as for as a woman. You know, men wanted to be with you. Women wanted to be like you. You know, that that's the ultimate that you can achieve as, as a performer, I think. Well, that was actually... <clears throat> Um, parroted to me from the record label many, many times, but that was never a, any kind of artistic motivation for me. You no. know, I kind of, I did what I did and I tried to choose, to choose people that, um, uh, that I felt were talented. 
you know, mm-hmm. um, even on the Some Girls Do album, um, I, you know, again, I was at the label and I was brought in, they brought me in a bunch of photographic, um, you know, you, the photography books where you get to look at and see the photographer's work. And I chose, I don't know if you are aware of who Floria Sigismondi is. No, I'm she sorry. Went, I don't. Oh, she went on to do videos for David Bowie and Nine Inch Nails and to, she did the Runaways movie that just came wow. out. Wow. recently um she moved to I, I wasn't aware of that because i i knew about that movie but i guess i never checked oh, it yeah out. she's really a, a tremendously tremendously italian a, a talented italian photographer and she was living in toronto and she was the girlfriend of one of the guys that was in the what you do to my body video and um i can't when i saw her book i was like wow this is art and so she was my photographer of choice so she shot the some girls do cover and she shot the entire inside layout. And she also, the first video that Floria Sigismondi ever did was my video for Peace on Earth. Wow. I don't know if you're familiar with that one, but yeah. I, sorry, Scott wants to talk to you first. Yeah, second. Scott. Yeah, so Lee, back then, obviously, you know, you're, you're, you're breaking ground as a, as a female artist and all that in a world that was largely dominated by guys. Did you have a lot of work cut out for you to maintain or, or, or your, your creative control over what you wanted this to become for yourself? Or was that an issue that you had to deal with uh, back then? Well, my answer to that is yes and no. Um, in my heyday, you know, when, uh, back when people, record companies could make a living from selling records and they were spending in excess of a quarter million dollars making all your records for you on production, on you know, marketing and publicity. And like, I mean, we would easily just pay $5,000 to have someone take pictures of me, right? Uh-huh. To have a good photographer. Videos were you know, like 60, $70,000. Back then, I would say that I worked closely with the label. What, you know, they ultimately, had the final say over what went on because they were the, your investor. They were pumping all this money into you. So right. if they weren't happy with the direction things were going in, but they also were, you know, they also realized, you know, that, <clears throat> you know, I was the person creating the art. I was, I've always been a songwriter. I've always, um, from about 1984 onward, I, I really tried very hard to wrestle con- more control of my image. Because the early years for me, I had, and I don't want to talk too much about this, but I, I had a manager that pushed me. I, I signed with him when I was 18 years old, 17, right. I think. Um, from the age of 17 till about 21, I was pushed very hard into a, um, he was trying, really trying to market me as in a very sexualized manner as a pinup girl. And I was always right. uncomfortable with that. And um the, the downside of that is that, again, music was my f- first love. I mean, my first band, my first band, I played saxophone and keyboards and, you know, we were a band and, um, and I had always written my own songs, but that, that whole sexualized image really eclipsed the music part. Mm-hmm. And so to, to, to many people out there and a lot of the media, they just saw me as a pretty face that was a product of someone's imagination, not an artist. And that, that drove me nuts. That well, hence, me- hence your husband, John's perception of you. Yes, like how, exactly. how, how sad yeah. is that? 
you know? Well, exactly. Yeah. And it, it, it's sad. Because, and that's, that's what happened with that whole misogynistic thing that happened with music all along. Like women were pigeonholed so much more than men. Like, well, they were, they were men weren't, let's face it. You know, men, men didn't have to put up with that crap. Well, and especially in the mid 1980s, yeah. That's what it was all, you know, it was a very sexualized um, and very much an era of women being objectified in on video, you know, and on album covers, right? Mm -hmm. You know, oh, it was many... very, very common to see a bunch of women, you know, in bikinis all hosed down, washing a car from for some like artist, well, you know. Well, who's, and that, and that, was, like, that was sort of the impetus for my question is because really, you really, you want to stand uh, forward facing because of what you're creating not because of what you look like or, or or how you photograph it's it's the art it's the music itself that's what you're struggling for correct well and i gotta tell you the song metal queen was sort of a pushback against that it was my you know after everything that happened to me when i was younger and then I, you know, I wrote the song Metal Queen with the idea that, you know what, this is going to be an archetype for women. This is going to be a strong women taking, woman taking charge. You know, it was supposed mm -hmm. to be a feminine, strong, you know, uh, I, I'm not really articulating this very well, but, you know, um, a woman, a female archetype for women, you know, someone who is in charge, someone who is a matriarch of her reality. But the video, you know, um, was supposed to be like this fantasy world where a woman is in charge of everything and she triumphs over the forces of evil. But it was because of the era in which it was released, I think it was greatly misunderstood, right? Uh -huh. And, um, you know, as a, as a result in the UK and Australia, that video was banned because oh. there's a part where they set me on fire and I break free and I take control, but the, 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 the censor board, the sen there was all that Tipper Gore censorship stuff going on at that time. And they were like, this is violence against women. And I'm like, no, this is about a woman triumphing over, triumphing over that type of abuse. Right. And like, and anyway, it was really misunderstood. And I, you know, that's probably a, a one of my regrets, but, the reality is I get to re-explain it now to people and people, people understand it a lot better. And, and my true fans always got, got it. You know what I mean? So there yeah. you go. Well, how many albums you see out there in the eighties, you know, where there's a, there's a woman bikini clad with bruises all over her and a guy standing behind her with a whip, you know, and that was acceptable. You know, what is going on with that? Oh, believe me. We've come a long, long way, yeah. you know, and I read an article where Ann Wilson was talking about that as well, that there was, you know, we had so as women in the eighties doing rock music, we had so many mountains to climb, you know, so many, you know, it was a constant battle against sexual stereotypes because the reality, unfortunately was, you know, if you look good, you can't possibly be talented. You must be some kind of record company product, right? But of course, if you look good, you're fighting against the record company wanting to exploit that because good looks sell records, right? So I, you know, I felt like I was always trying to, to justify myself and I should never have had to have felt that way, right? I'm ashamed, to, I'm ashamed to say that I've, I've, I've been that way about boy bands. 
where I've thought it's all a product, it's all crap, it's all this, it's all that. Then you find out the actual talent that's involved there, like yeah. a Justin Timberlake. I mean, good oh, Lord. You the guy's know, badass, totally. Oh, yes. No, totally oh, kidding. Yeah. And there's a guy that I totally dismissed because he was in a boy band when he first came out. You're like, yeah, how, yeah. Stupid, how stupid am I? You know, you end up, I, and I have to be careful about things sometimes because this has nothing to do with our subject, but it does in a way. I was, I was homophobic till about the time that I was 38. Why? Never met a homosexual in my life. Never did. Why was I homophobic? When I did meet homosexuals and I got to work in conjunction with them, I went, what the hell's the matter with me? Like all of a sudden it, I woke up. And so when I see people now that are still homophobic, I have to draw back and go, wait a minute, you were that guy before. Just because they haven't seen the light yet doesn't mean they're not gonna, or you at least have to understand that you were that dumb too. You know what I mean? Well, and you know, we are kind of all products of the cultural information we're being fed, right? Mm -hmm. And um, which is how Trump, half of America voted for Trump, right? Yeah. Yeah. I know, it's insane. You really want to go there? I, I, I can't even go there, but you know, um, can you guys, I just, my dog, I have to let my dogs out. That's okay. That's fair. Okay. Door right here and they're like, let me out. We have to go to the bathroom one sec. That's okay. That's fair. There we go. Um, I was going to say, when did, when did you move to Vancouver? What year was um, that? And, and where were you in your career when you moved to Vancouver too? I need to know that. I was, I moved to Vancouver in late 1995, um, officially in 96, but I kept a place in, Van in Toronto and I went back and forth for 90. 1996, 95, 96. Um, where I was at in my career was that I had uh, done the Some Girls Do album in 91, which mm -hmm. went platinum, by the way. Uh, but I'll tell you an interesting story. <laughs> Sorry. Sure. I, you Please. know. That's, what, that's why we're here. And I, you know, and I don't, I'm not blaming anyone per se, but I got off Attic Records in, in 1992, but I'll tell you what sent me over the edge. You know, that we, um, after all of the work that I felt that I'd done to legitimize myself as a song, like on the Some Girls Do, when that single came out, there were some industry people that actually called my manager and said, wow, fantastic, great, congratulations on Lee's new hit blah, 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 because it went into heavy rotation once again on, on Much Music. Who wrote the hit for her? And I was like, ah, <laughs> I wrote it. Oops. Oh my gosh, why am I still being treated? Like, I don't have talent here. It was so infuriating for me. And um, anyway, we had written, I'd written a song called Sex With Love. And the, so the, in the inspiration behind that song was old fashioned values, morality, if you're going to be intimate with someone, it's a great idea if you actually care about them, right? Sex with love. That's a great and, song. Right, yeah. it was a fun song. But I said to the label, please do not release this as a single because I really think that the media will probably have a heyday with it. They won't get it. They'll just see the word sex and run with that, right? Well, did I, get I did not get listened to. It ended up being a single. So I had lots of explaining to do, right? <laughs> Every yeah. time. And um, without my knowledge, 
And it wasn't Almer. Almer, I love, I love the man to this day, Almer from um, Attic Records, the VP there. It was someone beneath Almer in the marketing department made a decision. They took out an ad. Do you remember a publication called The Record? Yes, of course. Okay. So it was like, it was Canada's billboard. It was the publication. And it was the picture from the Some Girls Do album cover. And it was a big ad and it said, here's sex on the radio. <laughs> and it listed all of the stations playing the new single. It said, see sex on TV. And it listed all of the, I'm getting emotional even talking about this. It listed all of this, like rock, good rockin' tonight at West and much music and all of the video stations that had gone on the single. And then the last, it said, see sex on tour. And it listed all my tour days. Oh man. I lost oh. my mind. Oh my God. Well, David Farrell from the, who was the editor in chief at that time, phoned my manager and he said, have you seen this? Lee is going to go crazy. And he was right. I did. So it was the left hand not talking to the right hand. Someone made an executive decision. They didn't pass it by me for approval. I would have never approved an ad like that. I felt like it unraveled everything I had worked so hard for in my career. It was a super big button for me, I have to say. And at that point, we just we went into talks about me leaving the label and moving in a different direction. I just felt like, anyway, I don't want to go on. But anyway, uh, that was the beginning of me making some changes. I started my own label. I put out Emotional Rain in 1994, which was well-received critically, but it didn't sell nearly the albums that I had sold in the past because the whole landscape of music, grunge had happened and the whole landscape had changed. And not to mention the machine behind it too. Right, well, exactly. Um, and then I ended up um, on Emotional Rain. I hired Don Bins and Don Short from a band called the Sons of Freedom because uh -huh. I loved them. Yeah. I thought they were the most fantastic grunge band from the West Coast. I wanted them on my album because I, I was only 29 years old at that time. And I thought, I'm just going to keep, I, I didn't realize that my big heyday was over. I was like, I'm just going to keep making rock and roll records and I'm just going to adopt part of this into my new sound because I loved grunge music. I loved Soundgarden and Nirvana and Pearl Jam. And I thought, wow, what a great direction. Corporate rock was getting really crappy anyway. So this is a wonderful change. And that's when I made the Emotional Rain record again with the rhythm section from Sons of Freedom. And then I, I brought Reeves Gabrels from David Bowie's Tin Machine and um, uh, sorry, Knox Chandler, who had played in the Psychedelic Furs. I brought them up because this is right around the time when John Albany decided he didn't get it anymore and he wanted to make do the studio and move to Nashville. So I brought these, these like infamous, you know, new music players up to work on my album. And I mean, I'm really proud of that record. I think it sounded great, mm. but it didn't sell. It didn't sell the way that my previous albums had. And it, if you can hear that wolf, that's my dog wanting to <laughs> yeah. be what, what kind of dog? <laughs> what kind of dog do you have? I have a golden retriever and a cavalier. One sec. I'll let oh, lovely. Awesome. Oh, come on in. Come on in, buddy. Okay. Anyway, and um, at that time when I worked on that album, I forged quite a friendship with Don Bins and Don Short. And they said to me, if you ever want to make a completely different kind of record, 
come to the West Coast and make an album with us. We would love it. They, we all loved working together. So um, that's what I did. And I, you know, then just everything kind of fell apart. My manager, when he saw that my albums were selling, you know, 40,000 copies, not, which would be great today, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, not, not 200,000 copies. He just made an executive decision to take, he took a job. My manager took a job working for, um, uh, Koch International uh, out of the, the United States. He became their foreign licensing rep and he just didn't want to be a manager anymore. So I suddenly found myself in this situation where I didn't really have a manager and I wasn't sure what I was going to do. So I just sold everything and I moved to the West Coast and I made an album uh, written off the floor with the guys in the Sons of Freedom. And it's, that was, that we didn't call that album Learen because I realized that being Learen was the kiss of death with the Re industry really? at the time. Is that how you felt that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was like, so are you guys actually interested in this? I could go on. No, absolutely. Oh, yeah. I, I, yeah. I, think this is, I think this is quite good conversation. Well, so I made this album. I'm still proud of this album. I think it was artistically a fantastic record. I think it did some of my coolest writing on it. It was a grunge record. It was a grunge rock record. And we <clears throat> did this album and... Um, we called it Too Precious, and I didn't use the name Learen. I called myself Karen, right. and um, it was a band effort, and we hired, we got, um, actually, my manager hadn't quite left at that point. We ended up with new distribution out of Toronto, which looked really promising, and I hired a big promotional rep from Toronto named Bobby Gale. I don't know if you know. Yeah, I know Bobby Gale. Yeah. yeah. Sadly, he passed away in a tragic accident about a year ago, but I don't know if you know. Oh, that. I didn't know. I didn't know that. Yeah. Wow. Oh, he was oh. hit by a truck on the highway. Oh, my God. When he ran out of gas. It's, it was an awful story, but I don't want to go there. But anyway, so we hired Bobby Gale. He was a very notable rep. He took the songs into the biggest alternative station in Toronto called CFNY. And he played it for them. He wouldn't tell them who it was, but he said it was a Canadian supergroup. They were so excited about the music. They were, they were ready to go on the first single and they kept saying, who is it? They were guessing, is it Juliana Hatfield is the singer or who, you know, they were guessing who it was. He didn't want to do the big reveal. He wanted a commitment from them first. Right. So we were excited. We were like, this is going to happen when the, when they found out, he eventually had to break down and tell them it was, he said, it's Lee Aaron, who's the singer. They, they pulled it. They oh, for God's sake. Because oh. of perception. It was perception. Lee Aaron was part of the old guard and I was not part of the new guard. So that was really disheartening. It was really, really disheartening for me. Uh. And um, then, yeah. So that's how I ended up coming to the West Coast and I ended up making this record with them. We did a couple of showcases in the Vancouver area, which were extremely well attended because those guys had such a rep out here. Um, but yeah, the entire thing ended up dissolving. And, um, you know, at that point in time, uh, then my manager really did move to <laughs> New York. And I ended up, I showed up one day at my place in Vancouver and I had all these banker boxes on my doorstep and I was like, great, I'm like, a half a million dollars in debt. What, what is my plan? <laughs> mm. And that's why. Uh, I so how'd you dig out of that one? Well, well, you, you, well you, you, you say you, you went for bankruptcy. I guess that's. Well, my, I had, you know, I was, I was pretty depressed, honestly, at that time, it was a pretty dark period in my, 
my life and my career. And I, um, you know, I had lots of conversations with my, my mother and father at that time. And my mom's an accountant. And she said, look, you know, what are you going to do? You're going to spend the next, you know, the next decade of your career digging yourself out of this black hole of debt. That's not exactly inspiring or motivated to create music for, right? Mm -hmm. Or she says, you can just go bankrupt and start all over again. You can do it. And I'm like, okay, that's what I'm going to do. And so it was really my mom, again, who was an accountant, said, Go bankrupt. So it it seems what? like a, it seems like an obvious option, and in, re- in, in retrospect, it seems like an obvious thing to do. It really does. It was the best thing I ever did. Honestly, yeah. it was so nice to start with a clean slate, and yeah. then that's when I took a year off to lick my wounds, and no, I didn't really play at all. And when I came back, I was like, I'm not getting on to the the pop culture horse again. Thank you very much, and that's why I started singing jazz. And so you um. You record, you have, you have a Pro Tools rig, do you? I have Logic. Logic. And so uh, is it in your home or do you have it? Uh, yeah? yeah. And so do you and John work out of your house writing and stuff? Or, do, or is it you the principal writer? Does John write with you? or? Um, my, well, me, the music side, it, you, um, right now in my band, there's Dave Reimer, Sean right. Kelly, myself, and John. And, um, you know, we've written different ways uh, in the la- since 2016, um, after I was, my kids were old enough. I took a decade off to just be a mom, really. I didn't do any recording during that time. But in 2016, I released another rock record. 2018, I put out another one. 2019, yeah. I put out a live album. I've been and aware of this- all that stuff because I work with Dave on a regular basis. So right, I'm, and I'm, I'm on top of that stuff. We put out a little Christmas record this year as yeah. well. I don't know if yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. So we put out four albums in the last four years. Um, and, um, you know, John and I write, Dave and I write, I'm sorry, Sean and I write, Dave and I write, um, the last album that we did, which is coming out in 2021, I just signed a record deal for this new album, which is coming out 2021. Oh, congratulations. Wow. We, um, which by the way, I gotta, and I gotta tell you some more stuff about it, but we, my idea for that album was we get together in a room, we all bring our A game, we bring our best three or four song ideas, and we spent a weekend developing material. And by the end of the weekend, we like literally had an album. Um, All of the nuanced lyric content wasn't finished, but I definitely had chorus lines and I had melodies and I just stepped up to that mic and sang. And that's what became the new record. Now we started, um, and so on that particular project, we are writer, we're sharing writer's share equally across the band, right? Um, it hasn't been that way in the past. I mean, some of this, like the, some of the songs on my 2016 album are just me. Some of, the, some of them are me and Sean Kelly show writes, co-writes. Some of them are me and Don, Dave Reimer co-writes. But because we developed all the material in a room together for this latest album, and you know, Nobody's making money off records anymore. The way I figure, it doesn't really matter who brings in the idea. If we work it up as a band, you know, it's part of our band sound. I, I feel that the band deserves equal co-writes on the stuff. What motivation do they have to be in my band otherwise, right? Mm, correct. So, um, so that's how we're doing things these days. But the new record, we went into the studio uh, right when COVID hit. So it was all crazy and weird because... We're all like, 
stay, you know, sanitizing and trying to stay behind the counter when they're working on, it was, it was weird. It was that, that week in mid-March when COVID was developing hour by hour in the news. Mm -hmm. So we ended up having to bring those tracks back and finish the entire record remotely. So we all decided that we would all get on the same platform, which was logic and do, and we just shared files back and forth. And yeah. then Mike, Mike Fraser mixed it. Oh, great. Mike was he's just in, on our show. Mike was just on our show. He's incredible. Yes, he I is. love that man. Yeah, yeah, he is. He is. He's got the gift, that guy. It's a Midas touch. He really certainly does, you know. No, you actually sort of you delved into something I was going to ask you, but uh, so obviously with you, it's the music first and then the lyrics when you're writing. No, not always. Because I was going to ask you, do, is, there, is there ever a time when it's the lyrics first and then you put the music to the lyrics? I wouldn't say all of the lyrics, but sometimes I'll write poetry. <clears throat> like for instance, before we wrote this last album, I'd been on a Mexican vacation for a couple of weeks before we brought everyone in to do this. I'd been on with the family and spent a lot of time lounging around the beach. So I always have a lyric book with me. And I had written, <clears throat> I don't know, I'd written tons of ideas. Some of them were just like a, like a, you know, a few lines. Some of them were complete bodies of work, um, but I, I'm always writing in a lyric book. And when we got together as a band to work up these, this material, I'd flip through my book and I'd go, oh, I, have an, I have something that's gonna work here, you know? Mm -hmm. And a lot of the times it's, um, I'm able to take pieces of information, thoughts that I've written and work, put them into the music. And with revisions, like obviously phrasing revisions and things like that. So um, a lot of the times they just magically work together. So it's there, we, I don't have one particular way of writing songs. I'm just always writing words and I'm always writing music ideas. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Yeah, I, I I had an opportunity to do an album. It was actually one of the first albums I ever did out of my studio with Lori Paul. Do you know Lori? Lori Paul. Yeah, she's she's really a, she's Paul. she's she's a great singer out of Vancouver. But okay. she, I think, when she really made her mark was before you had moved out here. She was sort of a jazzy kind of songstress, you know, torchy, great singer. But um, we had, we had known each other for a time. We decided to do this album together, and and she was one of those people. She was taking a creative writing course at the time, mm -hmm. so she would I I would come up with these musical ideas, and she would fit her lyrics into them and stuff. And it was it was an interesting thing for me because I lyrics of always been something I have to work and I struggle so much to get content you know it drives me crazy because you don't want something that's going to be moon soon in June of course but you know it, it, it's a real difficult thing for me music comes like that but in a situation like that where she would have lyrics you could sort of almost look at the lyric and you almost feel like the way Elton John does with Bernie Taupin mm. where you know I mean there's the big story with Elton John I, I, apparently with um, the the uh, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road album I mean, he would get to the studio early in the morning. You probably know this story, but it's probably good enough for people to hear again. He would get to the studio early in the morning with lyric, Bernie's lyrics. He would look at it, and he said if it took longer than half an hour, he'd scrap the idea and move on to the next lyric. I, so John and I were just having this discussion a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, I know, I know. Yeah, I know, and so, he'd, and so he'd write the song in the morning, and the band would get there, and he'd teach the band the song, and they'd record it. And the next day to be the next song. They would do beginning to end each song. It was just like, so from inception, from a lyric sheet to a finished track, every day, that's how they did the Goodbye Yellow Brick Road album. Unbelievable. And, you know, I really, again, my experience of 
um, not sending not sending files back and forth for writing, of just putting the band together in a room and saying, okay, just bring your best ideas and working them up on the spot. With the new album we just did, I really think that there's a there's there's a va- so much value and magic in doing that because you don't have too much time to overthink it, you know. Um, and I even who was I? Gosh, it was a producer that we were talking. John and I were talking about just recently, um, and then his name escapes me. But his methodology too was he would bring the band in. He'd go, you know, okay, just play the song five times through and then go take a coffee break. He did not believe in that, the sort of like, okay, no, you can, you know, just it's a little slower, a little fast. He believed that if you didn't get that magic in the first five takes, that you had to give the band a break and get their mind out of that place of worrying too much about what they were playing. Because I know that feeling of being in the studio and going where you're just like, you beat something to death, it's lost its magic, right? Well, it's all coming back. It's all coming back to that. Like, you know, you can overthink things. And especially when you're working by yourself and you're sitting there in front of your Pro Tools or, or Logic, like you say, and you're listening to it, you're going, is that good enough? Is that good enough? Is that good enough? And you're over and over and over. But if you're with a group of people and you're going, and, and let's say you sing a, a pa- passage or something or you come up with an idea and somebody goes, wow, that's cool. Well, you've got validity there where you go, oh, okay. So you can move on. <laughs> you don't have to, you don't have to keep thinking if that one idea is good enough or not. You've already got somebody that goes, Hey, we like it. So good. So it actually frees you up to actually be more creative. I think I, I, I can't wait for the days when I get to do that again. Oh, I know. I know. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, there's zoom writing, I guess, but you know, you have to worry about latency, but. Yeah. Well, yeah, we're writing again right now um, for a new album. Um, I know it's like, what else is there to do, right? So yes, exactly. <laughs> we're writing for our twenty. Our twenty twenty one album is not out yet, but our twenty twenty two album is in its inception right now. So, um, you know, it's different. Like sometimes Sean will send me a track that is fairly complete with a drum machine and stuff, and I actually, I actually prefer it when he just sits down on an acoustic guitar and just, you know, sends me a quick idea that's just a riff or a couple of different riffs um, on his, like, an iPhone voice memo. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's not, it, it leaves room for me to add to it. Does that make sense? Yes, of Rather course. than being too completed. Of course. Um, so, yeah, like, there was something recently that I finished last week where I literally took the iPhone acoustic guitar memo and just snipped out the section that I wanted and I looped it. And then I was able to write over and like put a form in there that I that I heard in my head. Do you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. I don't know, writing has taken on a bit of a different um, thing now as well for us because, you know, ideally I'd love to fly Sean out and just put us in a room together and just jam ideas to write the next album. But unfortunately with COVID that's not possible. So. Is he still in Toronto? Yeah. Oh, I had yeah. no idea. Yeah, that's where he lives. Oh my gosh. So it's a big commitment when you guys are getting together. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's that's wow. Yeah. You know, it's amazing because all, all these all these the technology that we have to write with today. And um, you know, I, I remember reading an article with uh, McCartney lately, and he said he said we didn't set out to write these memorable pop songs. 
what it was is we had no tape recorders. We had to be able to remember our ideas for the next writing session. So we had to make them memorable enough for us to write, to, to remember them. And consequently, they became very, very memorable wow. songs. I've, I've never heard that before. That's amazing. I wow. know. It's pretty incredible, you know, because really they had no cassettes. They had no reel-to-reel. They had nothing. It's like they had to remember the song from day to day. If they don't get together for a week, you remember that song from last Tuesday? Yeah, I remember that. Well, it must be a good tune if you remember it, you know. Exactly. Wow, that's amazing. So you say you have a, a, Cav- a King Cavalier? A King Charles Cavalier. Yeah. King, yeah. Well, you'd love my little Jenny. She's she's a Britney. She looks just like a King Charles. She's a what? It's, she's a Britney, a Britney Spaniel. Oh, okay. Very, very, because so, we, we rescued her from Mexico. And uh-huh. we and people, when they saw pictures, because we didn't know what she was, we knew she was some sort of Spaniel. So I, I we got her from Mexico. So I call her our Cocker Spanish girl, you know, from from Lady, <laughs> Tramp, from, from Lady in the Tramp. So, yeah, but so everybody's saying, oh, she's a King Charles, she's a King Charles. And then we looked at Britney's and she just seems to be a little taller. She's, and she's such a bird dog. Oh, my God. Is, is your King Charles, does it go after birds too? Um, not so much birds. Well, we have to leash her. I mean, when we walk her, um, we, we there's a few provincial parks where we can walk and we can actually take our dogs unleashed. And our, our, our golden retriever is like a little human. You go, hey, get off the boulevard. And she comes back over onto the trail. She's very smart. But our cavalier will chase anything into the bush. She's, yeah, that's, that's, she's that's like Jenny. Little, yeah. But that's Jenny. Say, yeah, so occasionally um, we have, a, I have a big chest freezer on my deck because for overflow food and um, we'll let her out there. And sometimes if there's like a little rodent or something, she just goes insane on the deck and she won't come in. She's trying to figure out what is behind the freezer right now. That's exactly Jenny. I don't feel alone anymore. She, she just goes berserk. It's like, and she's the most docile, loving, cuddly, sweet little dog. And you get her outside and it's like De- Jekyll and Hyde. It's like when it comes to birds and, and squirrels and, and cats, oh my God, she's out of her mind. And if she, once she sees one, she's in the window like, you better oh, run yeah. out. <laughs> yeah, we, we, uh, we joke around. We call her our little, our mole murderer. Because we, uh, you know, and then when we get those mole, you know what, it, I don't know what animal it is, but we get, we've given up. It's like Groundhog Day here because when you get the, you know, the little piles of dirt that the moles are making and they're digging up, yeah. and you just, you can't use those little bombs anymore, which were perfect. You could get rid of them because we have acreage property mm-hmm. and you just, yeah, we're like, okay, go out there and do your job, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know. I, the last place I had, we, I, we, is it was it was it moles or there's something i think there's a grub there's a, thing the grub thing that what? tears up the lawn we had that problem too it was like just anyway it's also a vole like a mole but it's smaller oh it's smaller than a mole yeah our, they're, ti- our tiny. they're big they're like i think it's a mole but anyway where wow. is so what color, what color is your Charles? I don't want to go on too long about this but i'm gonna get her to come over and i can i can i can give you an in-person come here come here come on oh <laughs> Come on. Oh, come on. Oh. <laughs> She's very sensitive. Camera oh, shot. my God. Oh, look at that. Oh, yeah. Well, oh, my goodness. Jenny, I, I'd have to wake Jenny up. Come here, Jenny. <laughs> so, I know. It's such a cutie. Oh, oh my gosh. There we oh, go. Here's Jenny. So cute. I know. <laughs> well, this one, again, we live on acreage property. So, um, we used to comb her ears out long and lovely the way you have, 
And like within a day or two of her running around in our yard, because she, she has no idea that she's a calendar dog, right? How about your, a calendar dog, you know, the ones you see in the calendar. Oh, okay. Okay. They're so beautiful, right? Okay. She's a pinup doggy. She had, she just runs around there like a little banshee and she would get the mat, such severe mats in her ears and she's very sensitive. So we could never comb them out. So the last time we took her for grooming, we're like, just shave the ears off. We don't care. We've only had Jenny for, well, we got her December 19th from Mexico. Oh, oh, really? Yeah, yeah, she's, she's she, just, she doesn't speak English look, yet. Look at how sweet she is. <laughs> you can just tell how sweet she is. She's the most wonderful, gentle yeah, little yeah, soul. Baby. You know? There you go, honey. Um, yeah. Well, Darla. Good girl. We've had Darla for eight years. She's, she's, she's looking at me like, what the hell was that all about? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's, she's, she's ha- hanging out in the studio with me today. That's, that's a nice thing. Yeah, she's a sweetie. Anyway, so yeah, uh, um, so uh, what's so you you actually you've actually planned for albums for twenty twenty one and twenty twenty two already. This is amazing. I love this. Yes. So your creativity is definitely on fire. I guess all the, the ten years of, of being a, a stay at home mom and really hunkering down, it's probably nice to get that release out, huh? Well, I I don't have any regrets. I mean, I always knew that I wanted to have children. I just didn't really know when, and I didn't obviously wanted to have them with the right person. (laughs) So Don was the guy and um, great. He's a great drummer and a great father. And um, yes, we had our children in 2004 and 2006. And I actually toured. um, I toured the beautiful, I put out an album called Beautiful Things. It was a jazz hybrid record in I produced myself in 2004 and I toured um, up until I was six and a half months pregnant with Angela. It was, yeah, we flew from Van, we were in, we finished in Newfoundland and I flew from Newfoundland to Vancouver. By the time I got to Vancouver, I just could not get my shoes on. I was just so, (laughs) (laughs) my feet were so swollen. I was like, that's it. I'm done. And then Angela came and you know, I had this crazy idea, and I've said this before, that I had this crazy idea in my head, like, oh, I'm just going to have kids, and I'm just going to make them fit into my my music life, and I'm just going to, like, you know, I'll just bring her on tour, you know, I'll just bring her, and then, you know, and then we had a baby who had, she was not only colicky, our, our first child, she um, she screamed every time you put her in her car seat, like, like all the way to Safeway, and I was like, <laughs> so four months into her life, I was an absolute train wreck. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> okay, so this little human is reshaping my life for me. I really had to resign myself to the fact that motherhood was it for a while. So we just decided we were going to have another baby right away. And um, I did selected concerts throughout that time. So I Hold it one sec. I got to hold on. Remember that you're going to concerts, but hold it. So you had a colicky baby who screamed all the time and you decided to have another one? Well, that's that's it, incredible. <laughs> let me it was John's idea. <laughs> Not mine. At first I was like I'm like like he was so he always wanted to be a father his whole life as well, right? And so we really, it was divine intervention. We met at the perfect time. Both of us had, we'd been in relationships before, but we'd never had biological children of our own. Mm-hmm. We really, really wanted children. Um, 
And so he had always dreamed he would be a father. So when Angela came, our daughter, he was just so enamored with fatherhood and with this new little baby. Three months in, he's just like, let's have another one. I'm like, whoa, <laughs> put your ginch on back, my friend, <laughs> back on. My friend. <laughs> like, I am so not ready for this right now. <laughs> he's like, he said, this is fun. I'm like, for you. <laughs> It's like, but anyway, to, by the time I was, the, he ended up persuading me. And so by the time, um, yeah, by the time Angela was 11 months old, I got pregnant with Jeff. And um, he came, he was born 19 months exactly to the day she was born. Did they have the same birthday? No, not the same. Sorry. Um, oh. 19 and a half, no, 18 and a half months. That's right. Oh. Sorry, my to the day. So she oh. was born on June 7th. He was born on January 7th. Oh, wow. 18 and a half months later. And, so um, do, do you find the old thing that daddy's a little girl, mommy's a little boy? Because uh, I've seen that a lot. I mean, it was it definitely happened with my children. It was like my, my daughter was always daddy's little girl and my son was always mommy's little boy. It was like that's sort of just the way it worked, you know? know that it's necessarily that way in our home um yeah i don't know we we really uh you know i think we had our kids when we were a little bit older as well yeah. and i honestly i i i really feel that you know i certainly i'm a better mother now than i would have been in my 20s mm. or even my early 30s right um and uh i think having the benefit of you know maturity and wisdom you know we really do try to orchestrate family things as much as possible i mean our our big thing john's big thing is um uh film right so he we're we're big film uh and movie fans and we have a big huge collected collection and a big screen room and uh we do a lot of family um movie nights oh that's you know, nice that's very so much nice. into uh you know classic and critically acclaimed film yeah. That's the one that's the one thing I, I don't ever regret being a father. I do regret that I was so incredibly young when I became a father. Like I, I was really, really, really young. And I just didn't have the maturity that I thought I did. And you like you say, when you're older, you just you're ma you're making much wiser decisions, you know? And I, I that's why uh, there's a there's a book called Conversations with God. It's a series, and I, I'm I read not, it in my thirties. Yeah, yeah, it's a fabulous. I think it's in book two, and the God in the book mm -hmm. says that children were, ne were never meant to be raised by their parents. They were meant to be raised by their grandparents because they they're the ones that have the wisdom. <laughs> You know, really, yeah. and I, because it's true, a parent is too busy trying to make a living, trying to do this, trying to do that. The grandparents have relaxed. They're, they're, they're sort of in a, they're in a much more nurturing role than, than a parent is, you know? I think older parents are much better parents than young parents, generally. Not, not always, but generally. Well, thank you for saying that. I hope my kids feel the same way. Um, you know, I know that, you know, we, we struggled. We, we weren't successful having a baby right away. We lost three babies. And um, mm. so when Angela finally came, it was sort of like, Eureka, you know, we've, hey, we got the, but I was, again, like there was a lot of things contributing to me being a nervous wreck after she was born. I'm being really candid right now. You know, we, um, I, I know I was, you know, I, was, I thought she might stop breathing in her sleep. And, uh, but the first baby you're like, you know, you know, they drop their soother on the floor and you're like putting it in boiling water and 
by the time you get to the second baby, you're like, you know, it drops on the floor. You're like, you blow it off. And <laughs> it drops in the toilet. It drops in the toilet. Who cares? <laughs> so you really, by the time, but by the time Jet came along, I was a lot more relaxed. I was like, okay, he's not going to die. Yeah. You know, it's like, and I, you know, I love the fact that we had a big, we have a big acreage property full of trees they could climb and we could just throw them out there and sort of let them explore without much worry. Um, so I, I would like to think that I wasn't a helicopter parent either, because I mean, that's, we're in the era of that now where kids, mm -hmm. I mean, my gosh, they're just, they're not allowed to do anything risky. And if they don't do anything risky, how can they learn how to, how to manage themselves, they're, right? They're, dri they're driven a block to school. I mean, good Lord, what's going on out yeah. there, you know? Kids, kids, kids don't climb trees anymore. I mean, we used to climb trees, make forts, come back and you're cut, you're bruised, you're scraped. And it's like, I can't wait to go back out again. You haven't, met, like you haven't, met, my you haven't met my granddaughters. <laughs> <laughs> they're hanging oh. from trees like monkeys, those two. At least oh, they wow. used to. Now they're, now they're older, but. Yeah. Sorry, what area of town uh, do you live in? What, what, what? Roughly, in, in roughly. It's outside Vancouver. No, oh, that's all you're going to say. Okay, okay, okay. So I got an idea. Okay, yeah, good. yeah, fair enough. Because I, yeah, because you're talking acreage, so you know that I know where there's some areas out there. You're not, definitely not going to have an acreage in Vancouver or Burnaby, that's for sure. Well, let me tell you what's happening around us is it used to be a beautiful horse ranch across the street from my house. Mm -hmm. There's now 17 skinny little luxury homes that are like multi-story high, two thousand yeah. over 2,000 square feet. And they're six feet apart. So yeah, we unfortunately yeah. are being encroached upon. Yeah. But anyway, I don't want to go into details. We're managing to stay here right now. Um, right. And, uh, you know, we, there's nowhere that we could move at this juncture for the money they want to give us and get what we have here. Yeah. Where we are. Right, right. So we're staying. Well, that was that was the thing was when when I met Kelly over in Victoria, we were we were and we decided we we're going to get married and we, we went back and forth. Is she going to move to Vancouver? I had a, I had a really nice place in Coquitlam. It was a townhouse, but a beautiful townhouse on acreage like mm -hmm. trees and a salmon stream in the backyard a place you never find and, and amenities nearby. You could walk everywhere you, to, to get what you needed. So it had that too. And of course we're trying to figure it out, but it just, it was, she had way more to lose than I did. So I moved over here and I haven't made, it was the best decision I ever made, but we were lucky enough that the money I had sold my house in Coquitlam for, we were able to buy a place over here on a lake for like $200,000 less and, and cash, you know, oh, nice. <laughs> so, you know? so it's like, it, nice. like it's a whole different, a whole different ball game. So it's, it's a much nicer you should move over to Victoria is what I'm trying to tell you. <laughs> well, I think we're going to, our kids right now, believe it or not, can walk to and from high school if they mm. wish. That's the area we're in. <clears throat> the biggest obstacle, seriously, <clears throat> pardon me, to us moving is my husband's record collection. <laughs> I don't know if you're aware, but wow. um, yeah, John has been a collector for 35 years he doesn't have any bad habits so this is what he's chosen to spend his money on his entire life and so we we literally have almost a quarter million pieces of vinyl you know oh my gosh yeah multiple rows it's we, we this house when we moved in sorry scott you wanted to ask a question well is, is this the same place I, I, it, it, if memory serves you did a thing with cribs was it 
several years ago? Is this the yes. same place? It is. I remember seeing the, the albums back then. Well, what you saw then is triple the size now. Oh, my gosh. Because that was initially the, the former owners, um, that was, a, believe it or not, a helicopter garage. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so John converted the helicopter garage into <clears throat> a music library. And then a decade ago, um, and this was, so my son, our son is 15. And when we filmed Cribs, he was 10 months old. A decade ago, and this was again, John's dream. I had, we had paid off our home and John's dream was to blow out that garage another thousand square feet. So that's what we did a decade ago. And we expanded the music library, which has evolved into <clears throat> a, a CD library, um, a multimedia room because it's, we have theater seating and a projection screen in there as well. And, I, and again, I'm not, it's, I'm not saying this to be braggy. This is, this is John's man, ultimate man cave, right? <laughs> it's like his thing. Um, but we also have a massive, massive uh, movie library. He loves owning things hard copy because he doesn't necessarily, um, <clears throat> some old movies and certainly vintage things, you can't get them high quality on TV. And, but you can buy a 4K DVD, Blu-ray DVD, right? So um, we have a massive movie library of, and all kinds of box sets of different directors. And it's, it's, quite, it's quite geeky. With his, album collection, <laughs> with his album collection, does he have actual real collectibles in there as well? Oh, yeah. Like, he, this, uh, like so, okay, because the, the one that comes to mind that's really hard to find because they only made 5,000 of them is a mono version of Sgt. Pepper. I'm sure he has it. Because they only made 5,000 of them and then they were called back because Capitol Records told them you have to mix this in stereo. And the mono was the best version. I, I'm sure that that would be something he would have. He's, he's what is called a completist. So if there's something missing from the Elvis collection, he goes on a mission to find it wow. on eBay or wherever. <clears throat> and, um, you know, when Fox got rid of their vinyl library, well, it's at my house. <laughs> when, when Jack Cullen got oh, rid of yeah. his, he yeah, has the, Jack, the, the Owl Prowl, yeah. Jack Cullen's collection is in my home as well. Wow. So, yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I was amazing. I was recently, uh, I've been privy to wa uh, reading some stuff on Jack Cullen's rock and roll past, even like when he was in, like back in the early days of rock and roll. Like I always thought of him as somebody who played like Ben, you know, Glenn Miller and Benny Goodman stuff, you know, but he, he had a huge, huge, like, like vast array of music, like tons. Yeah, he did. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Charles just put this up. By my calculation, that's about 55,000 kilos or 1,121, 200, no, 121,254 pounds of albums. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me tell you, when we built this room, when we built this room, the, we, one of the, the problems with the, like this shot, this house was built by an original owner. There's some wonderful, wonderful features about it. Like we have a huge stone fireplace and a library and all kinds of things, but there's a severe lack of closet space here. So right. one of our ideas was when we built the thousand foot edition, we're like, let's put in a crawl space underneath it so we can put our crap there. Right. Right. So that's what we did. But of course the library, the, the vinyl collection, um, a bunch of rows of shelves of vinyl collection went on top of it. Oh, hold on. John is here right now. I'm going to ask him, do you have the mono version of Sergeant Pepper? 
Yes, ah, I heard that. That was fast. Well, tell, tell him I said hi. I probably haven't seen him in 22 years, but he's a wonderful guy. I will say hi. Yeah. Um, we had to have the, the uh, when, when the builder realized what was going on top of the floor, we had to put reinforcements in the crawl space underneath all of the shelving because it was too heavy. So oh you're, you're talking about a lot of pounds of records. Yes. Oh, yeah. Wow. Oh. Unbelievable. So the so the records are in a crawl space. Some of them, no, they're in they're in the big room. Okay, the big addition. Yes. Wow, unbelievable. Well, you know, um, so I mean, if one thing, it, <laughs> like like Neil Young said, Russ never sleeps, and it's a fantastic thing to say that you know you're still creative all the time. Your your latest stuff has been really good, by the way, because every time you do something, I get to see it or hear it from Dave. So it's oh, cool. it's really good. It's oh, really good. My, my wife actually um, went to see you out at the Charlie Winspear uh, in uh, oh, Sydney. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So, yeah. So, that was, so you, you probably never met her, but she was there. Uh, Dave would have gone up to say hi to her, of course. It, because of Dave is how we met, actually. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, oh yeah. because of Dave, you met your wife? Yes. Oh, yes. cool. Well, you know Dave. He's a, he's a chatty Kathy. And um, <laughs> so... so what happened was I was playing on Salt Spring Island with Dave and Mark LaFrance and Kelly and her girlfriend happened to come over to the Salt Spring Island too for a girl's getaway. They popped in to where we were playing, eight left. But I remember going like, oh my God, what is this? You know, I wasn't looking for a relationship. You know, I, I didn't, I wasn't planning on anything like that. But the, the next day we meet up in this park where they have a marketplace. And so I, I see her and I, I, you know, like the way she says, she couldn't even understand me the way I was talking. I was so nervous. And, but I got the words out, you know, come down, I'll buy you a drink. Well, that's fine. Mark and I leave this place. Dave stays behind because, you know, Dave is a craftsman and he likes to look at people that build things, you know? He's, yeah, yeah, yeah. So two hours later, Dave phones me, says, can you come and get me? It's a long walk. I said, sure. So he gets in the van. He says, did you see those girls that came into the club last night? I said, yeah. He says, I just had lunch with them. It was fantastic. Spent the last two hours with them. I'm like, what? Like I'm thinking to myself, no, that's mine. <laughs> you, can't, you can't talk to them. <laughs> but anyway, so Dave had a relationship at the time. It was like it was just he, he, he likes to call, he likes to talk. He's a great conversationalist. Dave so, loves he loves to make friends. I know. Yeah, yeah. And so anyway, to make a long story short, I overheard Dave that night because I never did get a chance to talk to her. I overheard Dave say something about Facebook. So I saw Kelly's name pop up on Dave's Facebook, and I went boop. And and four months later, I had enough courage to ask her out on a date, and we've been together ever since. Ah, yeah, it's a great story. Wonderful. Yeah, I know it's yeah. pretty cool. And it was, but it was Dave, and so we give Dave credit all the time for our relationship. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's a, he's a, yeah, I love Dave. I love Dave. He's an incredible, incredible guy, and what a singer, and what a, oh, he's just brilliant, brilliant, brilliant person. He's he's. I feel so blessed to have him in the band. He's a real talent, and he's a great friend. You know. Yeah. For me, what's more, what's equally as important to me at this juncture in my my life in my musical career and creativity is to not only be working with fabulous, talented players, but you to decent human beings. Like Dave's a great friend. He's a wonderful guy. You know, I care about him. He cares about me. Same with Sean. You know, and um, we're like a we joke around. We call it our band family, right? Yeah. So. Well, yeah. it's like Dave, when, you know, if I'm doing a gig with Dave, you know, he walks in, hey, Mick, how you doing? And he's genuinely wants to know how I'm doing. 
Yes, it's course. not just casual conversation with him. He really wants to know. And, yeah. and, and it's a lovely, lovely guy. He truly, truly is. Yeah, for sure. Anyway, but thank you for this. This has been a fantastic conversation. <laughs> we have so many we have so many mutual friends. That's the thing, you know. I know. I know it's crazy. Although, you know, <clears throat> when I came out here in um, 95, I mean, there's still so much history. I still get lost in Vancouver. I don't know everywhere <laughs> my way around everywhere yet. Um because I don't have a lifetime here, right? So I have 25 years under my belt here, but there's still a lot of things about Vancouver music history and a lot of the music, musician circles around uh, out here that, that I somehow never quite got connected to because I didn't start my career out here, right? So, right. yeah. Yeah, I can, I can appreciate that. I, I can. I, I learned a lot of Vancouver's musical history vicariously through people that I met who lived it, you know. Uh, but I've been here a lot longer than you have, but still. You know, my history's in Sault Ste. Marie, you know, the Sioux, oh, the, right. the Sioux Greyhounds. <laughs> my uh, One of my former bass players still lives there, a guy named Tim Harrington. Do you know Tim Harrington? No, I don't, no. Oh, great, great bass player. He also played with Aldo Nova. For oh, really? Too. Yeah. He's, he's, from the Sioux. he's still lives in the Sioux, actually. Yeah, it's a it's a wonderful little town. I, I love the Sioux. I, I I have very, very fond memories. Great. But anyway, but thank you so much, Lee. This has been absolutely wonderful. Great stories. Really, and hey. thanks for sharing all this time with us. Yeah, thank How you. How long is the actual special this whole time? Or do you, are you gonna edit, chop it up? 12, 12 no. minutes. We'll do about 12 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> No, we'll, we'll we'll probably air it in its entirety, but we will actually we have. We've been talking for two hours and twenty minutes. This is yeah. Well, we we will have the whole thing in its entirety. People choose to watch it, but we'll have little snippets as well, little vignettes as we call them. Well, it was so nice meeting all you guys. You guys uh, take thanks. care. You too. Thanks so much, Aaron. Tell my family they can actually walk around the house now and make noise. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, well, thank you for your time and, okay. and your family's time too. And We'd so love to have again, you once again. Love say hi to John for me. We'd love to have I you really back at some point in the future. Yeah, well, let me know. I'm going to have a new album coming out. Hopefully, we were talking yesterday about a May-June release date for the 2021 record, so let me know. Awesome. Uh, if you plan on re releasing your memoirs, maybe we can have another talk once you do that. For sure. Yeah, that's in. it's in the... Um, I've written two chapters. It's still in, <laughs> in progress. Um yeah, so, but yeah, that's, that's, that's an idea too, for sure. Yeah, great. Uh, yeah, it'd be great to have you back. Thanks a lot. Okay, take care. Take care. Take care, Lee. Bye-bye. 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 Hey, thanks for joining us. Check out our many other podcasts featuring vignettes and full episodes from a growing list of recording artists and other music insiders. And please like, share, and subscribe to our channel so we can bring you more great content from this and many other shows we're now producing. Available both on podcast and video on demand.